0: Turn back in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. As I said this morning, usually on Sunday nights we are continuing in our series through the Psalms, but I thought it would be well for us to continue our discussion related to the matter of the perseverance of the saints, sometimes called... The assurance of one's salvation, which is a little bit of a different question, but similar, or possibly even the concept that I mentioned this morning the eternal security of the Christian. And these are very, very important matters because there are many, many people, as I mentioned this morning, who have views. That are contrary to what I taught, and we need to expand some of our thoughts regarding this matter of the perseverance of the saints so that we can marshal together some other texts. You might be in conversations with certain persons who believe that one could lose one's salvation, Uh, you might be in conversations with those who are lacking the assurance of their salvation. And you'll want to have these passages in mind uh, as you attempt to help them or counsel them. This is uh, a very, very acute uh, issue within biblical counseling, where people are often struggling with the assurance of their salvation, or they don't quite understand, or maybe they've come out of a denomination in which uh, the matter of eternal security has been questioned or outright denied. And so this is very, very important. So I thought we would extend this into a sort of B version of this morning, or part four, if you wish, of our series on praying with Paul. And I want you to turn back there to Philippians chapter 1, and I want you to see what Paul says once again. I mentioned this morning, this may be uh, the greatest one-sentence verse in our New Testaments regarding the Perseverance of the Saints, Philippians 1.6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion or fullness or maturity or perfection at the day of Jesus Christ. Now this is a monumental statement where Paul, as I said this morning, is writing under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit and giving us the sense from his mind by way of the Holy Spirit's prompting him to write these very words, the matter of the perseverance of the saints. When he says here in verse 6 that it will be brought to completion, our salvation, at the day of Jesus Christ, of course, he's referring to to the second coming of our Lord. Now it may be that you and I go be with the Lord at our death and so for all practical purposes it will be at that time that our salvation is brought to its fullness or its full maturity. Now if we are alive at the Lord's coming uh, and that of course would be uh, depending on your eschatological perspective, uh, seeing that uh, we believe that the church will be raptured prior to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But for even those who have the opportunity to to respond to the gospel at any point, this is is a matter of the fullness of the coming of Jesus Christ that Paul has referenced to here in verse 6. And he's saying, the day of Jesus Christ. It's a very, very important statement relative to the idea of what God is doing when He brings us to full maturity in Christ. And this is a very, very important idea, this matter of our assurance of salvation or our eternal security. And if you go over to chapter 2, you remember that I mentioned in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now when we get to this passage as we work our way through the book of Philippians, I alluded to it this morning, but didn't make uh, a major reference to it, and I'll do so now, that when Paul says, work out your own salvation... He's not talking about working so as to obtain your salvation. He's actually using the term salvation in its broadest sense, which of course, for a person who's already a Christian, this would mean your sanctification. Work out your sanctification. Work on or work out your progressive sanctification with fear and trembling the word fear is phobos and trembling is trauma's where we get the word trauma and that's that's what he's saying work it out uh, with a kind of godly fear uh, work it out with patience and endurance you're going to have trials you're going to have tests you're going to have critical issues in your life uh, for which you will be battling against temptation uh, you're going to have to stand against the world Uh, All of those things come at us as Christians, and Paul says that what the Philippians are to do, as are we, is to work out our salvation in that sanctification sense with fear and trembling, and he grounds the very reality of that working out your sanctification in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is pleased to finish the work in our sanctification, which began at our salvation. God is pleased to do such a thing. It is His will that everyone who is a genuine believer, they are to see their own salvation hit its ultimate apex, its ultimate end. Did you know that the Bible teaches, we don't have time to go through the passages, but the Bible teaches that there are three aspects of our salvation. There's the initial salvation that we enjoy the very moment we repent and believe in Christ. When we repent of our sins, when we place our faith in Christ, when our eyes are open to the truth of of our deadness as sinners, and when, when Christ opens our eyes to the truth of our need for Him, and we are saved we begin the journey of the second aspect of our salvation, and that is commonly called our sanctification. So the initial salvation is when we are born again. The middle part of our salvation is this matter of sanctification, where we are born along by the Holy Spirit through the power of the Word of God, resisting temptation, growing in Christ, growing in our faith, maturing in godliness, and that Sanctification is the second aspect of our salvation. And then there's a third, and that's our glorification. So you could say that initial salvation and sanctification and glorification, glorification being the time when we see the Lord, when we go to be with the Lord, when we are fully sanctified, when we are sanctified in the absolute sense. And you could say that all three of those comprise the one word, salvation. So that's what salvation is. It has a past tense to us. That's when we were first converted to Christ. It has a present tense aspect to it when we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says here. And then there is a future aspect to it when we are standing face to face in the presence of our dear Savior. That's our glorification. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to Romans 8. But these three aspects are very, very important, and at any one time in our New Testaments, we are being told that there's a salvation that needs to occur in a person's life, or there's a sanctification that's the ongoing work of sanctification in a believer's life, or there's a future day, the day of Jesus Christ, when you and I will be brought to completion to the reality that we are as holy and as perfect as we're going to be, and that's when we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And those three aspects are repeatedly mentioned throughout the New Testament. Do you want to see one verse where they're all mentioned at the same time? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I think this is a definitive place where we see... That this matter of the perseverance of the saints, the, the knowledge of and the experience of the assurance of your salvation, the, the way that you can see salvation as a threefold reality. What happened to us at our conversion, what is happening to us now in our sanctification, and what will happen in our glorification is listed for us. In Romans chapter 6. And it is a glorious, glorious text. Look at verse 22. There it is. Romans six twenty-two. But now, now that you have been set free from sin. What's the tense there? Yeah, that's the past tense. You have been set free from sin. You see, we were once dominated by sin. We couldn't do anything but sin. We were, we were under its dominion. We were under its power. We had no opportunity to do what was right. Now, someone might quibble and say, well, we did a few things right. Well, even the right things that you did, you didn't do them with the right motives. So they might have been good acts, but they were good bad acts. They were good acts, but done with a bad motive, so they weren't glorifying to God, right? Because 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if you aren't doing good works by the glory of God, they may be good on a human level, uh, they, they may be profitable for some, but they are a stench in the nostrils of God because they aren't done with His glory in mind. And so you and I, for the first time, when we're converted to Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to do what I call good, good acts. We, we do good things for others, and we do them with the glory of God in mind, and so they're good, good acts. And by the way, you know that non-Christians, when they do very bad things, they certainly aren't doing those things for the glory of God, and so what they do are bad, bad acts, right? And so, Romans 6 gives us the first uh, aspect of salvation when it says in verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification. Sanctification. That's the middle part. That's the road we're on right now. That's where we're living as Christians. We are slaves of God... And that's not a negative idea, it's a very positive one, because our Lord is a righteous and holy master, and we are slaves of His, and the fruit you get or derive from being slaves of God leads to your very sanctification. Sanctification is just a big fancy word that means holiness. It means that you and I are progressing along a path of righteousness. You you could actually even define the whole of the Christian life like this. One positive and one negative statement. The negative statement is that I have a decreasing frequency of sin in my life. Non-Christians can't say that. The positive is I have an increasing frequency of righteousness. So the whole of my Christian life, the, the entirety of my sanctification, is a process in which I am making positive steps to increase in righteousness, and I am dealing with my sin to confess it and to forsake it, which means I have a decreasing frequency of sin in my life. That's the essence of Christianity. That's the essence of what salvation is. My sanctification is nothing more than the increasing frequency of righteousness or holiness and the decreasing frequency of sin. Now, the conundrum, or so it seems, of the Christian life is that you and I as we experience the decreasing frequency of sin, the sin that remains seems so much more heinous to us. But that's good. That's good. Because you're seeing sin every day progressively for what it truly is. And you are now despising it as even our Lord despises sin, at least to a degree. He's completely holy. He sees it from a completely different realm. But we get a faint glimpse of what our Lord thinks of sin the more holy we become. Because we're seeing the righteousness which is a part of His life inherently and it's a part of our life by virtue of our relationship with Him. And when we grow in that holiness, when we rise in that righteousness, we are moving away from the sin that so easily besets us. And when we do... The sin that remains, it's even more hideous to us than before. That's sanctification. And now glorification. Look back at Romans 6.22. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, the end of sanctification, uh, the fullness of it, uh, the the maturity of it, uh, the completeness of it, like Philippians 1.6 says. And what is that? Eternal life. There you have it. In Romans 6.22, you have all three aspects of salvation. The initial point of my conversion, the state of my being as a Christian, my sanctified walk in faith with Christ, and then its end, its completeness, its fullness, its uh, ripening maturity, eternal life. That's, That's something to praise God for. That's something to to worship and praise God for because you and I have the opportunity to deal with the sin of our heart in stages through maturity incrementally I grant you that but when we come to the end of our sanctification and we are granted eternal life then we're ready for heaven. We're ready for heaven. Now, I hear people, I hear people say, why doesn't the Lord just save us and then right on the spot take us to heaven? You know, I've pondered that question a lot, and I know there are many answers to it, and here's one of them. The one reason that always seems to come back to my mind, at least among many others, is that the Lord wants us to experience the dregs of dealing with our sin, the very sin that put Him on the cross. And the more I look at my sin, the more I know my sin, the more I look at the hideousness of it, the the ugliness of it, I gain a greater appreciation for what Jesus Christ did on that cross for my sin. And I gain a greater appreciation and a greater longing for heaven itself, which then enhances the very reality of heaven when I get there. So Romans 6.22 is a a great passage, a great verse, even on this idea of the assurance of one's salvation, or the perseverance of the saints, or the eternal security of the believer, because it tells us that this is going to be part and parcel of the relationship of every single person who is genuinely in Christ. There's a salvation part initially, there's a salvation part called sanctification, and there's a... Glorification part called eternal life. Now I want you to turn a couple of, of uh, or at least one chapter over, chapter five, and I want to show you another passage that I think is very, very helpful in this matter of nailing down the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Romans chapter five. If someone's struggling with that and you're attempting to help them out, it was alluded to earlier. It was quoted earlier. Look at Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You see, when you and I come to Christ... There's, there's such a declaration about us, a declaration of justification. Look back at chapter 5, verse 1. We have been justified. The word justified means that you and I have been declared not guilty in the court of law when God brings down the gavel of his justice. And the reason why he's bringing down the gavel of his justice is that, number one, Sin must be punished. And number two, that sin in the divine plan of God was punished in the person of His Son. Instead of your death or my death, the penalty for sin, we are set free from death and sin's dominion by the sacrifice of God's Son and therefore when the gavel of God's justice comes down, it comes down... For you and for me as not guilty by virtue of Christ's death on our behalf. It is in our stead, on our behalf, in our place, condemned He stood. Christ didn't have any sin, but He, he died on that cross in our place to deliver us from our sin. And the Bible calls that justification. And that justification gives us, by grace, something upon which we stand. It's a very important word. We have a standing in Christ. And that particular word, in which we stand, means that you and I have a permanent standing in Christ. You Remember I said this morning that you and I stand permanently forgiven, Permanently in Christ, there is never a time for a true believer, a genuine believer to be in Christ and then out of Christ because our justification leads to our perpetual standing in Christ. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 5 verse 2, we rejoice in hope. from the wrath of God. If the assurance of someone's salvation was in question, if someone did not know, not experientially, there are some people who do struggle with the assurance of their salvation on an experiential level. But on a factual level, if this doctrine is not true, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, then why would the Apostle Paul say this? Since we have now been justified by His blood, verse 9, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. If the wrath of God will ultimately come against all sinners who have refused to believe in Jesus Christ then that means by its opposite, contrastingly, that all of those who have repented of their sins, who have been justified by Christ's blood, will be saved by His blood from the wrath of God. That's that's a fact. You can bank on that. that. That shall never be rescinded. That's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 talks about you and I being delivered from the wrath to come. Remember that that phrase in Philippians 1.6, the day of Jesus Christ? Do you know that when Jesus Christ comes back again for a second time, He will punish and vanquish sin. He will set up His rule and His reign in Jerusalem. He will reign and rule for a thousand years. And He will be the Lord of the earth in experience. He's the Lord now of all the earth. He will come one day and physically, visibly return so that He might be the judge of the living and the dead. And those who are outside of Christ will receive the wrath of God Almighty. And those who are in Christ have been saved, Paul says, from the wrath of God. He says in verse 10, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Verse 11, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, Reconciliation. Folks, there's never going to be a time when you and I could say of ourselves, well, I I used to be reconciled with God through Christ, but I'm not anymore. I I once had reconciliation, but I lost it. I I, I once had this uh, eternal salvation, but I lost it. I, I once was delivered from the wrath of God, but now that wrath of God abides on me. See, all of those statements are incongruous with the reality of the factual statements in Scripture about those believers who are true and destined for eternal life. Look back at Romans 8. We read it this morning, and I want you to see it again, Romans chapter 8, because I want you to see in Romans chapter 8 something that's glorious, glorious. Look at verse 29 again. Romans 8.29. We read it this morning for our Scripture reading. Listen to it again. Romans 8.29. It might have escaped your notice. For those whom He foreknew, God had a knowledge of us before the world began, and through that knowledge, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, there was a plan. There was a plan whereby... God, from eternity past, as I said this morning, had a covenant of redemption through the Son, a pact, in Latin it's called the pacto salutis. It was was an agreement, a covenant made between the, the Father and the Son that there would be a group of people, so large that the Bible says you can't even count them up as the sand of the seashore they're they're outnumbering even the stars in the sky whatever that number is there is going to be the bride, the elect, uh, the people of God, the sheep uh, these are all testaments as phrases to the reality that there is a predestining foreknowledge that you and I, if we're truly in Christ, will one day be perfectly conformed to the image of His Son. In order, Paul says, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's our elder brother. He will be this, uh, this R.K. He's, he's the beginning. He's the, he's the leader. He's the pioneer. And then verse 30. And those whom He predestined, that's the whole lot of us who are believers, Old Covenant and New Covenant believers alike, and those whom He predestined, He also called. What tense is that? He also called. Past tense. And those whom He called, He also justified. Past tense. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What's that tense? Past tense. You say, I'm looking around the worship center tonight, and I see a lot of people, including myself, and we ain't glorified. That's true. But it's signed, sealed, and delivered. It is a reality beyond question. And it will happen. It will happen. In fact, turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Paul calls... This sign-sealed and delivered glorification in Ephesians chapter 1. Notice verse 13. In Him, in Christ, you also, speaking again of believers, in this case the Ephesian believers, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see that word sealed? That's the idea. It's the word araban. It's it's the word for uh, down payment. Uh, it's it's the concept of uh, you and I are on the uh, installment plan. It even, in some contexts, can mean something like an engagement ring. You and I, by virtue of our salvation in Christ and by the sealing of the Spirit have received an engagement ring, we are put on uh, an allotment, a a down payment, um, not a layaway plan, but a down payment that means that on the day of our arrival in eternity future, it is as good as though it's happened right now. It's a guilt-edged guarantee that you and I will, in fact, experience that third aspect of our salvation, our glorification, just as we're experiencing our sanctification right now. Just as we're sitting here, just as you are a human being, a living, breathing person in our midst, and so am I, that is as sure as God putting a down payment, an installment, an engagement ring a promise, the seal of the Holy Spirit, it says, that you and I will make it to heaven. That's, that is something to praise God for. That is something that you and I ought not only to know and relish, but to be able to teach and instruct our children, our, our spouse, our extended family members, all of those who are in Christ, and especially those who might have real doubts about the assurance question of their salvation. Now, if there were any doubts, if there were any more doubts, let's uh, throw them totally away by going to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. There are other passages that we could go to, but John chapter 6, this is a passage that I think helps nail the door shut on the matter of our eternal salvation. And it comes from the lips of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Here's what He says in the context of saying that He is the bread of life. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, "'I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst.'" But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. And then this marvelous statement in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Underline that. Highlight that. Circle that. Believe that. Know that. Teach that. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes... Now, this has to be a legitimate coming, right? It's not a half-hearted coming. And in this context of John chapter 6, and in the Gospel of John itself, there were a lot of would-be followers. There were a lot of those who were saying, I'll follow you. There are even those in the Gospel accounts beyond the Gospel of John who say... Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And oh, by the way, let me go and bury my father. Oh, and I've got some business interests I've got to take care of first. Those are sham followers. Those aren't real followers. But Jesus is giving a promise to those who are seeking him as the bread of life, truly and sincerely, In a genuine way, they want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives them this promise, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, this is the invitation, everyone who looks on the Sun looks in the sense of looking at that serpent on the pole and believing, right? I'm, I'm believing that you're the only one who can rescue me from my sin, I'm looking to you, Christ, whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him, that means believes in Him, trusts in Him, you put your wholehearted trust and confidence in Christ and Christ alone, if you look on Him and you believe in Him, you will have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. No wonder, verse 41 says, so the Jews grumbled about him. They grumbled about him because they didn't believe he was who he said he was. They doubted. But to those who don't doubt, he promises eternal life to them. And he even says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day day. He says in verse 47, truly, truly I say to you, you can bank on it. Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now that's the Lord Jesus. Those are his authoritative words. If you come to me and that coming to me is sincere and it is a trust. You've actually shed your own confidence in yourself. You've actually put all of your hope and your trust and your confidence and your faith and your reliance upon Christ and Christ alone. He says, I will not lose you. I know, I've heard people say, I know he will not lose me, but sometimes I can sort of jump out of his hand. If I choose not to believe anymore, I can... I can run away from Him if I want to. Those who are genuinely born again will never want to. You say, I'm not convinced. Look at John 10. I wanted to save this for tonight. Plus, I ran out of time this morning. John chapter 10. I read a few verses about Jesus being the Good Shepherd and that they hear His voice. He's the true shepherd. And then, in John chapter 10, this is just an amazing statement. Verse 24, the Jews say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. They bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And I've heard people say, but I can jump out of his hand. Number one, you wouldn't want to. And number two, that means that you're trying to concoct the idea that you're actually more powerful than, than the powerful Christ. Because if He will not allow anyone or anything to snatch you out of His hand, how do you think you can do it? No one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You know what we call that there? Double protection. The hand of Christ and the hand of the Father And they clasp hands together so that you and I are in the middle never to be snatched away by anything or anyone. Romans chapter 8. No one shall separate us from the love of Christ. Right? Eternal security is a biblical doctrine. The Perseverance of the saints is true because of the preservation of the Father. Think about that. Because a lot of people say, well, I don't know if I'm persevering, I don't know if I'm doing it the way I should, I don't know if my power can, can seal the deal, I, I don't know if I can really, really pursue this eternal life in such a way that it will be assured on the last day. You can because in your desire for obedience, no matter how many times you've fallen down, no matter how many times you get up, repent, shake the dust off your clothes and you work at your sanctification again, you are persevering if you're truly in Christ because God preserves you. So if you want to say that there are two sides of the same coin, so be it. The the doctrine of the preservation of God and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And yet there are still doubters. They say, well, there's some passages There's some passages of Scripture that seem to say something entirely differently. Well, let's go to them then. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. This is a place where many of these doubters about the perseverance of the saints, about the eternal security of the believer, about those who have the full assurance of faith. And in Hebrews chapter 6, there is one of a couple in Hebrews that are the so-called warning passages. And one of the first things that you need to do, especially when you're interpreting this particular book, the book of Hebrews, which, by the way, is the only and what we presume to be the fullest sermon that we have in the New Testament. Because the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon. How would you like for me to preach 13 chapters of my sermon to you. We would be here till midnight, and then I'd have to raise somebody from the dead who's fallen. The book of Acts, I'm kidding, of course, but the book of Hebrews is a, an actual sermon, and this sermon is a sermonic warning in some places, like chapter 6, like chapter 10, for instance. Even in chapter 4, it's a warning about people who've made an attachment to Christianity. They, they've been around. They've, they've considered the claims of Christ. These, um, these Hebrew men and women, they've been in the fellowship. They've, they've seen a thing or two about how Christians live. They've sat in the same chairs you have. They've opened their biblical scroll like you have. They are those who've bowed their heads and seemingly prayed when you bowed your head, true believer, and prayed. And yet, it seems as though this one, we don't know who the author is, whoever it might be, decides under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this sermon is, in part, should be a warning to some of those would-be followers, just like John 6, and that they should be warned about hanging around, about being a part of the fellowship, about those who are sitting in the congregation, who are pondering the person of Christ, but who have never yet fully embraced Him who've never yet committed themselves in repentance and faith unto Christ. And chapter 6 is one of those examples. Look at verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now notice verse 1 says, let us... Let us. All right, now he's talking about the true congregation, right? The true members of the congregation. And by the way, if someone were to say, Well, I'm not sure you're interpreting this accurately because it's, it's a sermon and it's in our Bibles, and because this is a book of the Bible, it's automatically talking to believers. Well, John 6 was talking to both believers and unbelievers, right? those who wanted the bread of life, who wanted nourishment from Christ, and those who were hanging around. They were considering, they they might want to follow Christ, but according to John 6, when he starts talking about drinking my blood and eating my flesh, or you have no part with me, they take off. And John 6.66 says, and there were some of them who followed him no more. They didn't want the commitment. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to have faith in Christ alone. And this is Hebrews 6. And he's saying, look, here's what we need to do as genuine believers. There's elementary doctrine, and then we need to go on to full maturity, even as it relates to several of those doctrinal matters that he gives there. And then he says, verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. And then notice that little interesting and provocative and important word, for. Verse 4. For it is impossible, note that word, in the case of those, and these are the hangers on. These are the ones who are not fully committed. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And uh, stop right there because there are several of you who might be thinking, wait a minute, I mean, that sounds like the real deal. I mean, you have tasted of the good Word? Uh, you've, you've had an experience with the Holy Spirit? Uh, you've you've been enlightened. Uh, you, you've even seen something of the powers of the age to come. I mean, that sounds like a Christian. Well, let me tell you, just like Jesus says, there are tares among the wheat in every congregation. There's a there are a lot of people who've had similar experiences. There are people who sit in churches every single Sunday who have no relationship to Jesus Christ whatsoever, who have seen and heard a sermon that you may have been greatly impacted by and it had utterly no effect on them. Now, you don't know that on the outside. But on the inside, they're dead men's bones. And there are people who might even raise their hand. They might even say, Hallelujah! They might say, Oh, let's praise God some more since you and I don't know their hearts, they could be utterly devoid of a relationship with Christ. That's what he's describing. Because he says this. Verse 6. If they're all that, and then have fallen away. That's the word apostasy. They've fallen away. And if they have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, or the verse actually should be better translated this way, and they are unable to be renewed by virtue of repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. You say, what does that mean? They've listened to the gospel message over over and over and over and over again and they're only bringing harm upon themselves because over and over and over again they reject the message. They're supposed to see it. They're being confronted by it. The same gospel that you were confronted by that you believed, that you saw, that you heard, that you repented of this sinful life that you had and they don't because they've fallen away and it's to their own harm, and even this. And they're holding him, bottom of verse 6, they're holding him up to contempt. Holding the Son of God up to contempt. And then he gives an illustration. Notice this, verse 7. For land, this is the, this is the, the person who is a genuine Christian. This is a person, he's going to give two illustrations. The first is positive, the second is negative. He says, I'm going to liken a congregation made up of two different crowds. And the first crowd are those who really get it. They really understand. They've responded to the gospel. They've praised God in earnest. They have a genuineness about their faith. They love the word of God. That's why they're here. They love Jesus Christ. And the writer to Hebrews says, let me give you an illustration about them. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. You know what that means? That means you and I who soak in the Word of God every Sunday. It's for us this sweetness of nourishment. We love the Word of God. That's, that's why you're here. And you, you allow it to soak in in your life And what you do is you become a land that's saturated with the blessing of God. He's just all over you with blessing. And you see it cultivated in your life and you praise God more and more and you're growing and growing and growing until you're a person who's like the land that is full of growth. That's the positive. Now look at the warning. But, verse 8, if it bears thorns and thistles, in other words, there's no productivity, there's no growth, there's no response, the word has no effect, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You see, that's a warning against a soul who's in the fellowship. And they got their Bibles open. And they got their heads bowed. And they're raised their hands to praise God. But inside, they will have none of it. You see, it is true, isn't it? That some of the irreligious people are sometimes outwardly, seemingly, the most religious. They dress up, they come to church. They give money philanthropically. They have their name put on the building that's been dedicated in their honor. They do all good deeds. They seem to be upstanding. And they come into the fellowship, and they may have even come into the fellowship for years. And what happens with those persons that only God knows is that after a time... You and I might hear, what happened to so-and-so? Oh, they left. Never to be heard from again. Or even perhaps if they stay. What do you think about old so-and-so? Well, he seems like he's really committed. And yet, because the Lord Himself only knows that someone who is not firmly attached themselves or have been attached to the person of Jesus Christ in truth, in reality, in sincerity. And then someone says, Well, do you suffer with assurance issues? The assurance of your salvation? You might even hear someone say, No, not at all. I know where I'm headed. How about you? And it may be that if such a person is in that condition they may have what we call a false assurance false assurance maybe it's all wrapped up in pride because of their generosity because of their service because of the fact that they have been around for a long long time and this is my church and yet god knows the heart these people they've tasted it they've had these enlightening sermons They've tasted what looks like the goodness of the word and and the power of God. But if they fall away, if they fall away, the Bible says, it is impossible for them to be renewed by virtue of repentance. This is a very serious thing. That's why there's a serious warning going on here. And do you realize that for these readers or those first century listeners to that very sermon, they were actually being challenged to depart from Judaism these Jews, Hebrews to come to the person of Christ the very cult quote unquote the way that Christianity was called you don't want to join them that's suicide you're going to be de-synagogued you don't want to go with those people That's a cult. That's the way. Don't go that way. We're Jews. And so these people, they were being confronted. They were being warned. Okay, if you come to this fellowship, if you come to this place, we do business with God. He does business with us. This is real. This is serious. This is a matter of commitment. And there are sometimes those people, they look like us, they talk like us, they walk like us, but they're not us. You say, well, how do you know? I don't. God knows. And you know the same thing was happening in 1 John. In 1 John 2.19, there were a group of people who began even to have doctrinal disputes within that fellowship. And they started denying the essentiality of the person of Christ in terms of, Christ coming in bodily form and they were challenging even the deity of Christ and at one point they gathered together in apparently such a large group and they started making demands doctrinally on the fellowship and John had to write them a letter and he said this in 1st John two nineteen. and they went out from us for they were not really of us for if they had been of us they would have remained with us but they went out in order that it might be made manifest, manifest to the world, that they were not really of us. 1 John 2.19 Within every congregation, there stands some who are playing games with God. They're playing marbles with diamonds. The gospel is, Is being put to them week after week after week. And in their hearts that nobody knows but them alone, it's of no effect to their souls. That's what's going on. Look over at Hebrews 10. If Hebrews 6 says, Let us do some things, true Christians... And watch out for those, those people who are shams in the fellowship. Hebrews chapter 10 says the same thing. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, and think of the congregation again, and think of the person who's sitting there, they're a pew sitter like you and me, but they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. They have profaned the blood of the covenant by which He, Christ, was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know what he's saying this This sermon? from the preacher, hey, if you're in the fellowship, and if you act like us, walk like us, talk like us, at least to some degree, and we might think everything is fine and dandy with you, but God knows your heart, and if you start to rise up and you start sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There's going to be a fearful expectation day of judgment for you, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why, in a sense, it's a very dangerous thing for someone to attach themselves to a Christian congregation as though they're a Christian when they're really not. So there may be some people who have assurance questions about their salvation. And they should. Because they're not really Christians at all. And what we should do is we should continue teaching and preaching and living the Christian life in front of them that will be a conviction and a witness to them. And how many times have you and I heard that someone was a church-going person, maybe even a member of the congregation, and you and I thought everything must have been well with them? Because they were always around, and you heard them say something like this I think I've just been saved. And you're saying, Charlie? It can't be true. Charlie, I've seen you here. Charlie, I was in that Bible study with you. Charlie, we we were all around the campfire, and I saw you throw your stick in there. You made the commitment. I was there that day you walked the aisle, you signed the card. I saw you praying with the preacher up front. Charlie, that can't be true. Well, let Charlie determine from Charlie's own heart where Charlie is. And that kind of person has apparently just come to grips with the reality that there's a fearful and living God who has visited him in judgment through the person of Christ. And he responded. And you know, there may be others. And it may not be until eternity that you and I may have sat with them for decades in the fellowship and they looked good on the outside and they were ravenous with sin on the inside. And praise God for those who are both genuine on the inside and the outside. And so this book of Hebrews has much to say for those who are truly the Lord's and it has a lot to say for those who are playing games with the Lord. And you and I ought to come to the place where we teach this from God's Word. A true Christian is eternally secure. Eternally. And because of the faith of a true Christian, while it may waver, and while he may be taking a couple of steps forward and a few backward, and maybe at times he's going through a spell in which he's battling sin and he's losing it at the moment, God will always bring him to a place of full repentance always do you know that if we didn't have the new testament data about the person of lot we would assume that lot was a wicked man do you remember he was trying to get out of sodom and gomorrah and he did some dumb things about giving his daughters to the men of sodom And he wasn't moving quickly. And the angels had to basically grab him and move him along in a quick way. I mean, if you look at everything about Lot's life just from the Genesis account, you'd say, well, that guy's certainly not a believer. And yet Peter says, Lot's righteous soul was vexed. He had a conscience. And so you have to look at the totality of someone's life. And when you do, you may find out that someone who doesn't look like they're doing well repents. And they, over the course of their life, are walking with Christ, no matter what it might look like in the moment. And then there are some people that it looks like for long periods of time, maybe even decades, they look like they've got everything wired, but inside... They're a false professor. And their hearts are far from Christ. You say, what do we do? How do you respond? How do you know? Most often you don't. If you do and there's sin in the camp, you've got to deal with it. But most often you do exactly what Jesus said. Let the angels at the end of the age bring the reaping for all the wheat and tares. And the wheat will go where it should, and the tares will go where it should. And so we preach, and so we conclude that if someone's true and genuine in the faith, they are true and genuine in the faith, regardless of what it may look like at any one point. You say, well, that doesn't sound like the kind of counsel that gives me practicality. Well, let me suggest. I want you to read 1 John, five chapters. And in 1 John, it will give you a barometer of the loving of God and the loving of brothers and sisters. And it asks you to take a a survey, as it were, of your life, a spiritual inventory. And when you do, you can ask the questions of your own soul via the text of 1 John, and ask yourself, do I really have the assurance of my salvation? Is what he preached tonight true of me? And if it isn't, I invite you to repent. And even if you've been in the fellowship for years, there's no greater opportunity for us to rejoice with you than a person who acknowledges, regardless of the circumstances, I want to repent publicly and be baptized in obedience to Jesus Christ. I don't care what somebody's going to think. It could be that they say, Martha, you've been a Christian for decades. And you say, I know my own heart now. And it wasn't so. But praise God, it is now. And for those of you who have never struggled with your assurance, you've never questioned the legitimacy of your salvation, it was as clear now as it was for the day of your own first day of conversion. Praise God for that. Not everybody has such a clarity. And if there are those of you who are genuinely Christians, and yet you've thought about this assurance matter and you've struggled, 1 John is for you too. And when you read that great book of the New Testament, and you're asking questions, and it's giving you confirmation by the Spirit of God, then praise the Spirit of God. Say to the Holy Spirit, thank you for giving me a sense that I can say, Abba, Father. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. If you're a person who's here tonight and you've never had any nagging doubts of the assurance of your salvation, it's been as clear as the first day you came to Him. You too take these passages and mull them over, think them through, even assemble other passages that could have been talked about tonight and continue to bask in the gift of assurance and as you become even more assured might you use these passages with others to encourage them and disciple them and nurture them and counsel them many many people struggle Give them the assuring hope that salvation in Christ is forever. And give them a new lease on a life of assurance. Father, thank You for our time. Thank You for these precious ones. May we now truly sing Your praises as we come to close our service. Thank you for the study of your word and for the richness of its truth. We are assured that I am Jesus and he is mine. pray in his name. Amen.